Take your copy of the Bible, if you have one, and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. While you're turning there, just to share a couple of things with you. Um, Most of you know that I spend the mornings during the normal week in study. The afternoons, I'm here at the church in the office uh, dealing with various things. In the evening, I try to spend time with my family. This week, I'm going to be away a good portion of the week on sick leave. I am having surgery on Tuesday. Um, My sinuses need to be fixed. So my sinuses need to be fixed, and so they're going to go in and do a procedure. This all goes back to this vertigo issue several weeks ago, so please keep me in your prayers. And um, the surgeon said, you're, it's not major, you're not going to be in the hospital, but you probably need a couple of days to get over the surgical procedure. If you've been through that, that procedure where they open up and spread the cavities, here the passages, you know it can be a little painful. And so please keep me in your prayers. Also be in prayer for Sam, my, our youngest. Um, he started his internship this week. We took him to Macomb on Friday. And uh, somebody asked how long he was going to be there. Well, as long as the Lord will have him there. Um, I think I'm, I may have actually said interim by mistake instead of intern. It's not an interim position. It's an internship that he's been given uh, where in exchange for him working for this church, they provide him with his housing, and, um, and then he will be training under worship leaders there uh, with the idea perhaps of being called by the Lord into that as God would lead him. So keep him in your prayer. guest of ours, I'm glad you're here. If you don't have a Bible of your own or didn't bring one with you, there's some in the pew rack right there in front of you. It's the black one. Just grab one, look in the table of contents under Acts, find the book, and then go to chapter 9, and that way you'll be right where we are. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47, the prophet has a vision. Not the weirdest vision of Ezekiel. Believe me, there's some strange ones in the book of Ezekiel. But this one is unique because in this vision, Ezekiel sees the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And coming out from under the foundation, there's just a little trickle of water. Just like a faucet being on. It flows eastward out the east gate. And he even is so specific to say it's on the south side of the east gate. That's how little water was flowing out. And... An angel that was there with him as a guide in this vision says, now pace off 500 paces and measure the water. And he said, I went 500 paces and I stepped in and the water was about ankle deep. And he said, all right, go 500 more paces. And 500 more paces, I went out and it was up to my knees. He said, I go 500 more paces and I went out 500 more paces, now 1,500 yards and it was up to my waist. And he said, okay, go 500 more yards. And he went out and he said, it was so deep I couldn't swim across. Now, You don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize the fact that when you pour water out of a faucet and it begins to spread, it doesn't get deeper, it gets shallower, unless there are other tributaries coming in. But this, Ezekiel is very clear to say, this comes straight from the temple. No other tributaries pouring in, nothing else adding water to it, and yet the further it goes, the deeper it gets. This is Ezekiel's river. And that's just counterintuitive. It's not, that's not the way things work. All right. You know why? Because it's a miracle. And the message behind Ezekiel's vision was that when the Word of God goes out from the house of God, the further it goes, the deeper its effect. 
the more impact it has until it becomes a raging river that no man, no demon, Satan himself cannot stop. That's what started on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. And for the last several weeks, we have watched this river widen and deepen and become stronger and stronger as it flows. And last week, Pastor Greg walked us to Damascus to watch a God-hater, well, not a God-hater, a Jesus-hater called Saul come face-to-face with his Redeemer. Talk about a game-changer. That was a game-changer. Not just in Saul's life, not just in Ananias' life, but in the life of the church. But there was still one dam left holding the water of the spread of the gospel left. One barricade, one blockage. And that was the Gentiles. How was the word going to go to the Gentiles? So far, it's been a sect of Judaism. Everyone that came in had to be circumcised and become a Jew and become part of the Jewish family before they could become part of the church. But that was not God's plan. So we have a problem. How are we going to bridge that? Well, problem for us, not a problem for God. God has no problems. He just has solutions. And God says, I'm going to take Rocky. and I'm going to have him do this. Could have been Paul, but no, it didn't need to be Paul. It needed to be the one that the early church saw as their leader, saw as the foundation, saw as the one who was the most outspoken gospel preacher of the early church, the Apostle Peter. He was the one that God would use to tear down the dam of opposition and resistance for the Gentiles to come to Christ. And so today, in a very long passage, which we will not have time to read all of, because it tells one big long story, actually it's the longest narrative in the entire book of Acts, we're going to look at how God uses Peter to break down the dam of opposition and open the floodgates for people just like you and me to come to Christ. It starts with Peter's preparation. Now really his preparation goes all the way back to that first day when Andrew drags his brother Simon and says, we have found the Messiah, and brings him to Jesus. And Jesus said, ah, you're Simon. From now on, I'm going to call you Rocky. You're going to be a stone rock. We're talking about him on Sunday nights and his life. And then it went on. His training went on. Peter was the only one of the disciples that ever told Jesus no, and he told him no twice. But all this time, God is shaping Peter, forming him into the person that he needs to be. And so as we get to the end of chapter 9, in verse 32, there are two healing incidents in Peter's ministry. You notice in verse 32 of chapter 9, we begin this story, and we look at this experience of Peter that prepares him for the bigger work ahead. In verse 32 of chapter 9, it says, As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. So he goes to Lydda. He finds a man by the name of Aeneas, who probably was part of the church. He had been paralyzed for eight years, bedridden. And Jesus, and Peter, excuse me, Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Make up your bed. Chuck Swindoll says, you know this was a miracle. Because most of us have tried for years to say, get up and make your bed to our teenagers, and they still won't do it. But Aeneas said, get up, make up your bed. Aeneas got up and made up his bed. Healed. And from there, while he is in Lydda, he gets a call from folks in Joppa. 
this young woman named Tabitha, or Dorcas, which means gazelle, because she was quick to run and help and serve, became ill and died. And rather than bury her the very same day of her death, which was the normal procedure, they put her body in a room upstairs on top of the roof of their, one of their homes and called for Peter. Peter, come quick. And Peter walked the three miles and went with the messengers that came to him in verse 39. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, we're told, and all the windows, all the widows approached him, weeping, showing them all the wonderful things that she had made for them, how she had helped them while she was with them. Peter had all of them leave the room. He knelt down, he prayed, and turning toward the body, verse 40, he said almost the exact same words he had heard somebody else say. He said, Tabitha, kum. Tabitha, get up. And Tabitha, came back to life, opened her eyes, saw Peter, sat up, gave her, he gave her his hand, helped her stand up, called the saints and widows to come and minister. So in preparation for this work that God has for Peter to do, he gives him this opportunity. You say, well, that just, that's great. And we recognize the parallel because just like Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, get up, take your bed and walk, just like Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kum, young girl, wake up. So Peter now is doing these things, and that's a wonderful affirmation in and of itself that Peter would begin to understand that truly Jesus is empowering him. Notice Peter always gives Jesus the credit. Jesus is empowering him to do these great things. But what makes it unique is both of these towns were towns that were overrun with Gentiles. Yes, they were cities in, 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 in Judea, but they were basically Gentile strongholds. And so among all of these filthy Gentiles, God is still working with his people by the power of Jesus Christ. So God decides that Peter is ready. And now it's time to move from an experience to a revelation. Something directly aimed toward Peter himself. And this is where we get into chapter 10. Peter is ready. Now it's time for the most probably important, one of the most important things Peter will do in his entire ministry. Chapter 10 starts out introducing us to this man, Cornelius. You notice it says in verse 2 of chapter 10, he was a devout man. He feared God along with all of his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always was praying. And about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came into him and said, Cornelius. Now, we have to stop right there. Third hour, three, I mean, ninth hour, third, three o'clock in the afternoon. That was the time of the afternoon prayers. Cornelius, although he was not a proselyte, he had not become a Jew, he so was enamored with God, loved the God of the Jews, believed that he was the real God, that he even set his schedule up as a centurion to pray at the time that the Israelites, that the Jewish people would go to the temple to pray. He couldn't go to the temple. He was unclean, he was a Gentile, but he would pray. And not only was his vertical relationship right, his horizontal relationship was right, he was doing deeds of charity and goodness and kindness to the people around him, and God recognizes that. Now, please don't misunderstand. God's not saying, because you've done all these wonderful things, I'll save you. No. What God said was, I see that you are moving toward me. I'm going to send someone to you that can tell you what you need to hear. And so we stop there with him sending three of his workers, two house workers and one of his soldiers, according to verse 7. He called two of his household slaves and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. And after explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa, which is where Peter was staying. By the way, with a man by the name of Simon, who was a tanner. 
tanner. What's wrong with being a tanner? Tanners were unclean because they had to deal with dead bodies of animals. You see how Peter's starting to change? Peter's staying in the home of someone who was an outcast. You could not have a house if you were a tanner within 75 feet of the city gates. You had to be outside of the gate of the city. You could not have a tanning business inside the city. And Peter was staying with this unclean Jew because he worked with dead animal carcasses. Already, Peter's heart is changing. It's softening. So meanwhile, while these people are coming the next day from Caesarea, Philippi, the regional capital of the Roman Empire in Judea, Peter is also engaged in prayer. Look at verse 9. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the housetop about noon. Now, there was not a set hour at noon to pray. In other words, this wasn't a universal thing. It was not found in the law. The prayers were in the morning and the afternoon and then at sunset. But Peter was a man of prayer. He went up on the rooftop where it would be a little bit cooler. The breeze would be blowing. It would be away from the crowds, away from the noise, so that he could spend time in communion with his Lord. And as he was praying, he was beginning to get hungry. They were fixing something to eat. He went into what the H. Uh, Holman calls a visionary state. I don't want you to misunderstand that he was somehow doing transcendental meditation or something. He was just intensely in communion with the Lord, listening, speaking to him in prayer, letting God speak to him by his Spirit. And Peter sees something. He sees heaven opened up, an object that looked like a big sheet, a big sail of a boat, a big white cloth floating down from heaven by its four corners. And in it are all the four-footed reptiles and animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And a voice said to him, Peter, get up. Kill something to eat. I know you're hungry. Peter said, oh, I can recognize a trap when I see one. No way. Peter loved to say no. No. I'm not going to do this. I have never eaten anything common and ritually unclean. And what does the voice say to him in verse 15? What God has made clean, you must not call common. Now, we already, most of us already know the end of the story. I don't think Peter had a clue what this was all about. But no sooner than the vision is finished, the three men that had come from Caesarea Philippi from Cornelius come to the front door of Simon the Tanner and begin to knock at the door and say, is there a man named Simon Peter here? And the Holy Spirit says to Peter up on the roof, I need you to go downstairs. Well, look at what it says. Verse 17, while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions to Simon's house stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. And then in verse 19, while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, accompany them with no doubts at all because I have sent them. So Peter goes downstairs. Says, I'm the man you're looking for. What's up? They tell him the whole story about what had happened with Cornelius. And now the light begins to come on. And Peter says, ah, now I think I'm beginning to understand what this whole vision was about. Clean, unclean, don't make something unclean or common that God has made clean. Okay, but I wonder how God's going to work this whole thing out. And then there's a little note in here that I think is very, very revealing. Verse 23. Peter then invited them in and did what? Gave them lodging. Gentiles! In the house of a Jew. Spending the night. You see? 
See how Peter's coming along? See how he's moving forward? See how he's changing his atmosphere? See how he's beginning to soften? He let these Gentiles come into his home, stay with him. Now, that wasn't absolutely forbidden, but it never, normally never happened because their dietary laws were so different. The things that Gentiles ate, Jews could not eat. The thing that Jews often ate, Gentiles didn't like. And so they just didn't normally keep company with each other. But Peter invites them in and says, here, guys, it's a long walk back to Caesarea Philippi. Spend the night. We'll start first thing in the morning. This is now the revelation. God has revealed something to Peter while he was at prayer. He has revealed something to Cornelius while he was at prayer and speaks to each of these two men with the goal of getting them together under the same roof. But as those of us who have been through Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby know, in every Christian's life, there comes a time when Blackaby calls us having a crisis of belief. We know what we should do. We know how we feel God leading. But what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? Well, Peter's taking the first good step. He says, okay, tomorrow morning, we'll head out. But this revelation has to turn into something more than just a piece of information. It has to become life-changing. We sang this morning, you make me new. You make everything new. You're making me new. And God was making Peter a new man again. See, that transformation process continues to go on and on and on in our lives. So now, beginning at the second half of verse 23, they get up, they set out, along with some of the brothers. We find out later there were six of them that went with him from Joppa. So counting Peter, seven of them, plus the three Gentiles that had come from Cornelius' house. And the following day, they arrived at Caesarea. Four days now since the miracle or the vision had come to Cornelius. Peter came, verse 25, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. Now, this word worshipped, I don't want you to take it out of context. I don't want you to think that he thought Peter was a god or anything. He was so honored that Peter would be there. Now, that was a change for Cornelius. I don't want to overlook that. You've got to remember, the Romans were the subjugating power. He could have said, well, Peter, I want to thank you for coming at my command. But he didn't. He fell at Peter's feet in humble appreciation for what Peter had done. And Peter says, hey, get up. I'm a man just like you. And as they began talking, Peter says in verse 28, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for you. See, now the light has come on. He understands that whole vision about the sheep and the animals. He says, I get it now. It's not animals God was talking about, it's people. That there is no one who is unclean. There is no one who's not open to the gospel. There is no one who cannot be reached. But I've got to be honest with you, I have a feeling Peter is still thinking, so let's give these guys the good news so we can get them circumcised and then we can make good Christians out of them. I mean, because you've got to remember, up to that point, circumcision was still the proof that you actually were a God follower, and then Christianity, the church, was a part of that process. So. Peter begins to preach. After Cornelius explains what happened, and then Peter begins the message. So you start in verse 34, he begins to share the gospel. And I love the phrase right in the middle of verse, or toward the end of verse 36. It says, let me just read verse 36. It says, he, meaning God, sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. But listen to the next thing he adds. He is Lord of all. 
Peter gets it now. Jesus is just Lord of the, of the Jews. He's not just the Lord of Israel. He is the Lord. He is the master of all people. All people. And then he begins to say to Cornelius, well, you know, you've been here. You know the events that took place. He shares quickly the story about Jesus' life, how God used him, how he was crucified. God raised him up on the third day, made him to be seen, commanded them to preach to the people, to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him. Now listen to what he says at the end of verse 43. That through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sin. And I believe with all my heart, based on what happens next, that at that instant, Cornelius said, now I get it and I believe. You see, Cornelius was searching for God. He was seeking God. He wanted to know how he could be a person that could be blessed by God and that would please God. And he said, I was told you would have a message for me that I need to hear. So tell me what God has commanded you to say. And the reason I believe that that moment light came into Cornelius and the other members of his household is what happens in verse 44. Because while Peter was still speaking, they had not sung just as I am, they had not had an altar call, they had not prayed the sinner's prayer. Right in the middle of his sermon, it'd be like one of y'all just standing up in the middle of my sermon saying, Stop! Right in the middle, but it wasn't Cornelius that said it. The Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. And the circumcised believers... The, the Jewish believers that had come with him from Joppa, who had come with Peter, were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. Why in the world did that happen? It never, nowhere else in the book of Acts do people receive, as, as this process is going on, they receive the Holy Spirit before they evidence their belief through baptism. Because I want, I believe. God wanted Peter and those other six witnesses to understand this is not about something that you did. This is something that I am doing. That's why, as Baptists, we believe with all of our heart that baptism does not bring a person to Christ. We don't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. We believe, some of us call it the first act of obedience after you become a new believer. But the moment that a person believes that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and surrender their lives to His Lordship and the, and the payment that He made for our sins by His death on the cross, and Certified through it by his resurrection to eternal life. That person becomes a child of God. And then baptism follows as a testimony of that transformation. And Peter recognizes that. He says in ver at the end of verse 46, he responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. Wow, talk about firsts. First true Gentile conversion. First Gentile baptism, first Gentile foundations class. Stayed a few days and taught them. Stayed in their home. Taught, preached. Well, good news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. You ever heard that? The news got back to Jerusalem. Peter's gone rogue on us. Never thought it'd be him. Boy, he was just a solid here. He thrown his entire life away. And they called him in. And out of this transformation in Peter's life, he now needs to communicate that. He needs to communicate to the other believers what it is that God had done in his life. And all of verses 1 to 18, and the reason we're not reading every single verse is because we have the retelling again of Cornelius' vision, of Peter's vision, 
But what's important is, it wasn't that they were so upset about the Gentiles coming to Christ, it was the fact that Peter went in and ate with them. You notice in verse 2 of of, uh, chapter 11, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him, saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them, you bad boy. Don't you know we're not supposed to do that? And Peter goes about and tells the story. He says, here's what happened. I had this vision. God said, don't declare something unclean that I've made clean. And then these three men came to the door, and I recognized I was supposed to go with them. I didn't know what was going to happen. I get there. I start to preach. As a matter of fact, look at the way he words it. Look right there on verse 15. This is still part of Peter telling them what happened. As I, as I began to speak, in other words, Peter said, I had five more points to my sermon. I hadn't even gotten all the good stuff yet. I was just doing the background material. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as on us at the beginning. He says it was just like Pentecost all over again. Without any motivation, without me asking, without me praying over them, without me laying hands on them, without me declaring anything like, I, like we did with the Sumerians and, and, and others. The, these people just began to speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a Gentile Pentecost. Then, I remember the words of the Lord way back in Mark's gospel. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I recognize this was a baptism. I didn't have to baptize them with water. The Holy Spirit had baptized them. So then, if God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder How could I hinder God? The man who said no three different times to God. How could I hinder God? But when they had heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, So, God has granted repentance, resulting in life even to the Gentiles. Don't you wish the issue had been settled right there? Unfortunately, it wasn't. We'll get to Acts chapter 15 after the first of the year, and we'll talk about maybe well, either December or January. And we'll talk about the fact there were still some that believed that there were certain rituals that had to be gone through first, even though God had said, don't you dare declare someone unworthy that I've declared worthy. We'll talk about that more when we get to Acts 15. But at this point, they've come to realize the fact that the gospel was not just for Jews and Jewish converts. The gospel was for everyone, regardless of their background, regardless. And what was the result of all of that? The movement was enlarged, expanded, and the river has flowed to this very day. And we are sitting in this room today, circumcised and uncircumcised. Americans, Italians, Germans, wherever our background may be, because God said, don't you dare call unclean what I have called. It saddens me that in some ways we turn that coin around. Now we who are the Gentiles, we who are the ones that were grafted into the vine, now criticize our Jewish brothers and sisters. We need to remember where we came from and that we're part of one big family. So where does this leave us? You know, one of the things about being a pastor is writing a sermon is really just a skill that you develop over time. You, you learn 
how to think it through. You learn how to put the passage together. You look for things that can jump up out at you to kind of form an outline. And then you go and look for things to fill in the gap. It's, it's not, I mean, I'm not saying it's not hard, but it's not. The hard part is on Monday, when I get up and Sharon and I have breakfast together, and then I go into my prayer closet, and I say, now, Lord, what do you want your people to hear? See, once I get that answer, the rest of it's easy. It's all downhill from me. And when I asked the Lord that question this past Monday, here's what he said. He said, Steve, I've got three questions I want you to ask. Number one, who's the Cornelius in your life? You think Ananias had it bad. At least Ananias was dealing with another Jew. Corneliuses are unclean. They are dirty. They're people we don't want to be seen around. They're people we don't want to have anything to do with. Who are the Corneliuses in our lives? Who is the Cornelius in your life? And don't you dare tell me you don't have one. If you really believe you don't, you're just as blind as you can be because we all have those people in our lives that we'd rather not be seen around by our own nature. Now, maybe you've, maybe you've conquered that. Maybe God, by His Spirit, has given you the grace to be able to love and to forgive and to fellowship with those who are not like you. But in our own nature, we all have the Corneliuses. Alexander White, great Scottish I couldn't even begin to be as eloquent as he was. I didn't want to read it to you. But he stood before his congregation. He said, I want to give you a challenge today. I want you to go home to your house. Take one of your white linen table napkins and lay it out on your table. And with your Sabbath Eve pen and ink, begin to write all of the people that you do not care for, all of the nations that you do not love, all of the types of people that you would have nothing to do with, all of the people that you consider to be unclean or beneath you or not worthy of your, of your love and your care. And then you hold that sheet up to God and say, no, these people I will not serve. And then see what God does to your heart when you tell Him the truth. And I want to challenge you to go home this afternoon and on a piece of paper, write down who the people are that you in your own nature would not want to be seen having lunch with at Denny's who you would not want somebody to drive by and see their car in your driveway, who you would not want to be seen standing out on the courthouse lawn carrying on a conversation with them. Who are the people that we think are not worthy of our care and our love? And then dare say what's truly in your heart, which is, God, I don't love these people. And then listen to what he says. Beloved, we need to repent. We all, I need, we need to repent of, the th of thinking that there are certain people who are outside the scope of the gospel. There is no one outside the scope of the gospel. There is no one that God cannot touch, that the Spirit cannot transform, that the healing power of Christ's love and His sacrifice on the cross cannot cleanse from their sin. And our task is the same as Peter's. You go. Give them my word and let me take care of the rest. That's question number one. Kind of makes you scared about question number two, doesn't it? Question number two, the Lord said. Ask this question. Do I have a regular time for prayer? 
You see, it was when Peter was at prayer that the Holy Spirit spoke to him. It was when Cornelius was at prayer when the angel appeared to him. And it's when we are in prayer, when we are communing with God, more often than not, when God will speak. Now, sometimes we're talking to him, we're communing with him, and then later something will come by. But because we had that time with him, we'll recognize him speaking his response. So it may not always respond in that exact moment, but we need those times of being joined together. I shared with my Bible study group this morning that Sharon and I on Friday, drove the seven hours round trip to Macomb to take Sam up there to University Baptist Church. And in those seven hours, we had a lot of time to talk about a lot of things. We also had a lot of time just to sit and visit and share and be quiet and listen to Keith and Christian Getty songs. Because of that intimacy and that relationship that we have, to know that the other one was there even if we weren't talking. So if you, if I, don't have a regular time when we're communing, that's what Psalm 141 was about this morning, those of you that were in Bible study. That's what Psalm 141 is all about, is that when we come to God, like the morning sacrifice, like the incense offering in the morning and the evening, on a regular basis, we begin to get, become more intimate with Him, and then He can speak to us. And the third question was, am I truly listening and then obeying what God is telling me to do? Am I listening and obeying? Or am I listening and then pretending like I didn't hear? Husbands, we know what that's all about, don't we? Oh, did you tell me to take the trash out? I'm sorry, I just didn't hear that. I speak of what I know. Cheryl, give me a big amen. I speak of what I know. I guess you ladies probably do that too. You just don't let it on. Selective hearing, we call it in my house. Now, beloved, let me get serious with you. Are we selective hearing with God? Are we choosing to hear what we want to hear and then filtering out the things that we don't want to hear Him say to us? I ask you, what kind of disciple is that? What kind of obedient follower of Christ is that? It took Peter three times to get the idea that what God has called clean, don't you dare call unclean, before he was willing to go to Cornelius' house. Whatever it is that he is calling on you to do and me to do, don't make him make him. Don't, well, make him have to put us in the vice to get our attention. Let's listen and obey. And watch the river of the gospel continue to flow. This movement of his people, let it be true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for your word and what it says. We thank you for the example of Peter, who was just like so many of us. He was all about his perspective on how things ought to be done, instead of yours. What he knew to be right and wrong. The Father, in your grace, you continue to shape him and mold him, move him, and use him to your glory. And Father, today we are here because Peter was obedient. We're here because that wall, as Paul talked about in Ephesians, was broken down. So now, Father, we come to you asking to use us, asking you to speak to us, to guide us. May we respond as Peter did, with a cautious, frightened perhaps, but willing obedience to what you call us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.